Good morning, everyone. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Next week I will actually finish this chapter. I have the most of the work done on the verses 10 through 13. And uh, today we're in 7 through 9. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9. Since there's only three verses, I'll read them here at the front end of the sermon. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I'm going to move this a little closer. See, we got a little bit of ring in it there. Okay. Might have to take down the gain a little bit. So, uh, I'm using Eric's mic today. Hopefully that means the sermon will be better. So, um, today we're looking at this issue of dining in the pagan temples as Christians. As we realize that in Corinth, uh, many, many of the people were converted from paganism and that the food available in Corinth was sacrificed to idols often, whether it was in the marketplace or whether actually part of a food fellowship in the pagan place of worship. And so that's what the issue is. Let's pray as we begin to uh, look at this and how it impacts, impacts Christians. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you for giving us wisdom and understanding and a hunger to know and learn your word. Give us wisdom in these scriptures so that we might live in ways that would not compromise the truth. And may we be bold in your gospel and in our faith in you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to verse 7. And then I'm going to read here verse 6 as well to get the context if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago when I was last in this section. Verse 6 says, Yet for us <clears throat> there is one God the Father, all things are from him, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ, all things are through him, and we exist through him. And the point was that Christians know monotheism is true, the deity of Christ is true, the triumph God of the Bible is true, and some in Corinth were saying, because we know this and we also know the idol is just a piece of rock or silver or whatever it's made out of, there's nothing real to it, it doesn't hurt a thing if we go to the idol temple and eat the food. That's their argument. And... Um, we certainly do know that there's only one God. But that's not a valid implication that therefore it means nothing when we dine with the idolaters. So let's go to verse 7 again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So we have some reference back to the slogans of the Corinthians, which I've talked about before. 
And let me give you the essence of at least three of their slogans. One was, all of us possess knowledge. That's a Corinthian slogan. Two, an idol has no real existence. It's another slogan. And third, there's no God but one. Now, there's some truth to these slogans. They're based on things that are somewhat factual, but their applications are wrong, and Paul is dealing with that. They're missing some key points, and slogans can tend to do that. They, they sound catchy, and they're easy to remember, but they may not give us a full picture of what we're dealing with. So um, we're going to unpack this a little bit on the next slide. I'll, we're, we're not ready for that yet. I'll unpack some of the words that are found in this verse. I'll also be citing some scholars. Why? Well, frankly, this chapter as a whole, 1 Corinthians 8, has been a difficult, misunderstood, misused throughout church history. And now there has come to light facts about practices and issues that were going on in Corinth in the ancient world. There's some great scholarship out there, and I want us to have access to that scholarship, and I'm going to share it with you. One particular commentary that's been really beneficiary, there's a lot of them, but this one by Paul Gardner, I think, really uh, is very helpful because it talks about the relationship of Christians to one another and their status and so on, and he, he really understands that. So here's Sidney Gardner. Paul's mention of this knowledge refers then to the matters the Corinthians are raising. To this, Paul responds with criticism of all three of their statements. One, not all have knowledge. Two, not everyone possesses the knowledge that an idol is nothing, with the result that they can eat idol meat sacrificed to idols. And three, not everyone possesses knowledge that there is no God but one, with the result that they can go to idol temples and eat. Indeed, Paul himself does not possess this knowledge. Paul wasn't going to the idol temple and eating. So whatever knowledge they had, Paul didn't share it, because that's not something he would do. Now, I'm going to point out right now, as we're studying chapter 8 and then chapter 9, what we'll find out is that when we get to chapter 10, it's even worse than we thought. At this point, he's taking their slogans and dealing with them uh, at the face value of it. Okay, even if this is what all there is, here's why it's still wrong. You get to chapter 10, you find out that the idols are actually demons. And there's a spiritual reality, and they're actually dining with the demons. But we don't get to know that yet. That's in chapter 10. So we're going to deal with this because Paul wants to talk about rights. That'll be in chapter 9. And uh, here's a statement that I have in my notes that I wrote. In 1 Corinthians, weak and strong do not imply un desirable versus desirable categories in regard to standing before God. Notice the term weak. When we read about weak or the strong, which will come up in 1 Corinthians, our minds think, well, it's bad to be weak, it's good to be strong. But in here, in this issue, that's not the point. The point is the unity of the body of Christ, 
the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ, our uh, desire to not bring offense to the body of Christ, and give a false message to the world so they don't understand what they need to be delivered from. So weak and strong are not moral qualities. They're differences between Christians in regard to certain things. And it's not bad. And Dr. Thistleton, another great commentary, says this, the weak, conversely, are not only of low social standing, but as part of a nondescript mass of undifferentiated citizens, crave for identity and for recognition and acceptance by the strong. If the strong set an agenda, the weak may be seduced to doing almost anything to gain what they seek while compounding their own confusion, says Thistleton, and intertensions by feeling the wrongness of it all at the same time. Let me stop right there. In other words, the strong... There's only one God. The idol's nothing. It's just a chunk of rock. It's all meaningless. This is where all the food comes from anyhow. This is what Corinth is all about. We can go in there and dine. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't ruin our relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to do. And so they're the important people. They're associating with the business people and the important people. And the weak are thinking, if I don't get with this, I'm going to be on the out in the church. I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to be important. That's what he's describing. And one more sentence in that citation. Their integrity has been compromised, polluted. It's a word that we have here, or tainted. Then he says in chapter 10, Paul will speak of their being wounded by blows, pounded by blows. So, overriding idea in 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians for that matter. The value, integrity, and importance of every member of the body in Christ is of utmost importance. And that how we make decisions about what we say, what we do, and how we do it, we should always have in mind that God loves every member of the body of Christ. Each one has a calling, a gift, and we should be concerned always for the well-being of one another. Now, let's have that overview slide of these terms that are found in verse 7 that are also important to the bigger idea of understanding 1 Corinthians. Gnosis, knowledge, is the first one. The word gnosis as a noun is used 10 times in 1 Corinthians. Five of these are in chapter 8. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. What knowledge was under discussion? Well, there's only one God. The, de- the, they were, the demon idea comes up in chapter 10. The idols are nothing. None of the idols created the world. None of the idols can save anybody. This is what people do in Corinth. It's nothing. We have knowledge of that, so we can go dine with the pagans in the idol temple, and it won't hurt our faith. So they have this knowledge. But Paul already pointed out earlier that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That claim about knowledge is not taking seriously 
the value of weaker brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And we'll see later in chapter 10, it doesn't even address the real spiritual problem, the demonic element. So 10 times in 1 Corinthians is thematic. Five are in chapter 8. It's used as a verb in 1 Corinthians 8, 2. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. There's the word as a verb, gnosko. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. There again, it shows the value of love. A whole chapter will be devoted to that, chapter 13, as opposed to having knowledge that gives me a right to do what I want to do, no matter how it hurts somebody else. Paul is addressing that. And by the way, they judged him to be inferior and weak and despicable. He's already come under their judgment. Now, we have the word association, synathia. That word uh, means in re- a relationship in which the participants are compatible because of shared interests, friendship, fellowship, fellowship intimacy. And so, in this case, this association, again, with the idols at the idol temple, would be implying shared interest, friendship, fellowship, intimacy. Now, we're starting to have a problem here. God saved you out of the idol temple. Is that where you want to find your breaking of bread together? and sharing food together. It's a big issue. Now, some have pointed out, well, we don't have the same thing in our day, although we're getting more of it all the time. But generally, diners are diners, and people eat here and eat there. And it's not always the main source of food, the temple of Asclepius or Zeus or somebody. But nevertheless, the issues are around. I remember when I became a Christian, it was through some Pentecostals who had um, the gospel, And to join the church, they had uh, a statement that you could not belong to a secret society and join the church. Now, what was the issue there? This would be somewhat similar. The secret society would be like the Masonic Lodge, and uh, which which had its own religion and its own idea of here, shared interest, friendship, fellowship, and so on. And it turns out the Masonic Lodge has their own God. And uh, John Ankerberg a while back revealed what that was, supposed to be a secret, and they, he got death threats for doing so. So these issues are still out there. That's why I point that out. So association, somewhat like the idea of fellowship, and then conscience, sunodesis. And interestingly, as it, this is the first use as far as at the time it was written, the first time Paul uses it, first use in the New Testament. Conscious synodesis, also discussed by Thistleton, he says this, Paul sides neither entirely with the weak nor entirely with the strong in all respects and in relationship to every context, says Thistleton, or occasion. For the self-awareness or conscience of specific persons does not constitute an infallible guide to moral conduct. Let me talk about that. 
because of the development of this term, even from 1 Corinthians to Romans, which is written later, many of the scholars take this and define it as self-awareness. Self-awareness. And some might be able to go into that idol, temple, have a meal. Nothing's changed. I know God. I don't believe any of this stuff. Food is just food. Does the same thing after I eat it. Doesn't matter. That's their version of self-awareness. The weak go in. Their self-awareness is, I'm in trouble. I've denied the faith. I'm, I think God has had it with me. That same dynamic happens always. Some people struggle greatly in the matter of self-awareness of being right with God. And others, whatever goes on is just water off the duck's back, as we say in Minnesota, probably elsewhere. So that is the idea of conscience. Uh, So I think a number of the scholars are pointing out that self-awareness is probably close to Paul's meaning here. Um, Thistleton also says someone's self-awareness or conscience may be insufficiently sensitive to register negative judgment or appropriate discomfort in some context. And then we'll get into that in chapter 10. And oversensitive to the point of causing mistaken judgment or unnecessary discomfort in others. We'll get into that in chapter 10. So the conscience is not the final arbiter of what's right. The truth is revealed by God. We know what that is through the scripture. And the key issue in 1 Corinthians is love for God and for one another. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Love is important. How I influence, treat, and what happens to my brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than my rights and my decisions about what I'll do or not. And then we have that word defiled, maluno, and it means to defile, be the smear or soil as with mud or filth, make filthy. And we don't want that to be done to one of our brothers and sisters in Christ in order that I might have my rights. Now, we'll talk about there's nuances to this. I Teaching First Corinthians is at one and the same time a great joy and a tremendous challenge. I left it to this stage of my life uh, because I thought maybe the Lord would come and I wouldn't have to <laughs> try to figure all this out. But uh, realistically, uh, I thank God to have to have the resources and the tools to be able to understand it better now. So I'm thankful for that. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's what Paul says. So let's look at this again, controversial. Is this a slogan? In other words, it's the first sentence here, 8A, 
Is that their slogan? Or is it a statement that Paul's making on his own? Whatever the case is true, our standing before God is secure. We found that out in 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 8. That'll be one of our applications, so we'll get to that. The elitists may have claimed superior knowledge and thus freedom to eat. Because they had better knowledge than the other pathetic Christians that didn't have it, they can eat. And you just better get your act together if you don't understand that. That's the sort of attitude that Paul was seeing. Commend here uh, is a word, uh, paristeme, which would mean stand before. Another issue. I'm not shielding you from any of the issues, even though it makes it a little more difficult. We need to deal with the issues. This commend us to God can either be negative or positive. It can be a statement, food will not cause us to stand before God under judgment, or it may be food will not cause us to stand before God to receive praise from him. In other words, whether you take it as negative or positive is not the key issue. Now, if that's their slogan, Paul is somewhat agreeing with it. It may be his statement. No one can know. Why is it this difficult? Well, because They knew things that we don't know. Letters have gone back and forth. They knew what Paul had told them. He knew what they had told him. We're reading this, and as he writes back to them, and trying to understand what the issues were. So the truth is, what we eat will not shoot us down as far as our standing before God, and what we eat will not give us great standing because we ate the right thing. It's not important. And then Paul says, we're not worse off or better off. Now, the new RSV has quotation marks saying they believe it's a slogan. Food will not bring us close to God. So uh, in this context, um, Paul is addressing this as freedom. What we eat, the content of our diet is not something of spiritual significance. You can't make yourself more spiritual. You can't make yourself more pleasing to God. You can't make yourself into big trouble with God and a failure in God's eyes. Food is not of that sort of thing. It doesn't have that sort of status. If he says, in this view, the Corinthians have picked up one of Paul's own words from a different area and are pressing it to their own purposes. Such freedom, he points out, they have argued, can also be applied to eating of any food in any circumstance, including the idol temples. For Paul, this is the wrong use of freedom in regard to food. First of all, because of what it can do to a brother or sister. Now, another, uh, some other scholars that have helped me in some ways, very, very much so, have pointed out about the relational aspect of this and what might motivate people to want to go 
to the idol temples to eat, even though they're Christians. What would motivate somebody to want to do that? Well, Siampa and Rosner point out that this would probably be like how you go up the social ladder and gain clients or be finding a job. It would be similar to a lot of activities that we may have where people are in the arena that we do our business. So you'd want to be there, whether it would be the country club or the uh, business association or the chamber of commerce or whatever might be out there where people are going to maybe find clients or become a client, find people to do business with. That's what they think is going on. Since at least a third of the food in Corinth went through the idol temples, that's where things happened. And if you want to be somebody and get somewhere, you better be there. No, that is going to be a problem. And they point out, probably Paul's point, however, that being, being made in response to a suggestion by some Corinthians that, in fact, they are worse off if they do not eat food offered to idols and better off if they do. Parenthetically, for the sake of maintaining or building relationships outside the church. If they were not going to snub their neighbors, and if they were going to advance up the social ladder of Corinthian society, it would have been advantageous to participate in the many important social contexts where idle food would be served. That's a problem. And in some ways, a lot of Christians in America face similar problems, and we have questions and we have to make decisions. How much do I associate with? And in what context? What constitutes sin? What constitutes a witness? What constitutes uh, taking liberties with what is not a liberty or being prudent about not associating with the pagans? These questions come up, and we'll keep dealing with them as we go along. Paul's response to Siampa and Rosner is that the Corinthians need to be more concerned about what will please God, not their pagan neighbors, and benefit their fellow Christians rather than themselves. And so that's the guideline. More concerned about what pleases God, more concerned about what benefits my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But that does not make us isolationists. Let's go to verse 9. Here's an imperative, an imperative, a literally blapete. Watch out is, would be a little translation. But take care, imperative, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now he's addressing the strong who claimed the right. And his terminology, and this is a good translation from the Greek, this right of yours has a little point to it. Yes, you strong ones, you're claiming a right. But the imperative, don't let that be a stumbling block to the weak. So take care, playpo, play watch out. The word right here, by the way, will be a major theme in chapter 9, which we'll get to here in about a month. 
But chapter 9, the term comes up again and again and again and again. Paul uses it about himself. What is a valid right and what isn't? And they were claiming Paul didn't have any to speak of, but he says he does because he really is an apostle. Exousia is a normal word for authority, but in this context it means right. I have this right. The word stumbling block, a little different than um, the word for scandal, scandalon, but it's used in a similar way. It's found in the Septuagint. That's, somebody asked what's LXX comes up. That's just shorthand for Septuagint because Septuagint is a long word that doesn't fit on a slide. And it means Roman numerals for 70, Greek Old Testament cited most of the time in the New. So in Isaiah 8.14, it speaks of Christ who would become a stumbling block. Let me read that. Isaiah 8.14. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both of the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That verse is cited in Romans 9.33, a stumbling block. God has ordained that the means of salvation that he has ordained would be through a crucified Jewish Messiah, one whose lineage is from the Old Testament, the Messiah of promise, the pre-incarnate creator, second person of the Trinity. Both Luke and Matthew have genealogies for Messiah. And the prediction in the Old Testament is that he'd be a stumbling block, an offense. Because God chose Messiah, the son of David, also son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promised one, to be rejected by his own people. That offends the Jews. How could it be that our Messiah came and we don't recognize him? If we don't recognize him, he's not the Messiah. How could it be that if this is the Messiah, the cursed Romans capture him and kill him? Of course, they asked for that. And so this is an offense, it's a stumbling block. And uh, this is how God brings salvation, even to Gentiles. That an offensive thing, like a crucified Jewish Messiah, would be the means of salvation. In just a moment, I'll present the gospel to you. <clears throat> Dr. Gardner says, Thus, the elitists or strong were part of a group having knowledge, gnosis, and exercising what they believed to be their rights. In chapter 9, when Paul speaks of his rights, it is notable that he does so specifically as one of the group of the apostles. In some, this right of yours, notice yours, and he cites it from the Greek, of which Paul talks almost disdainfully in 8.8, is not some theoretical possibility, but involved practice. In their belief that eating in an idle temple was their right, the strong caused the destruction of 
the weak person. How could that happen? The weak person is thinking, I used to go to the idol temple. I used to be a pagan. That's what I was. I came to Christ, and now my Christian brothers are going back there and eating. And if that's all there is, maybe my faith isn't valid. Maybe this doesn't really mean anything. Maybe it's just as well off the way I was before. And it would cause the destruction, which is a word, apolumi, which means eternal destruction. This is a serious stake. It's a serious thing at stake. It's very important. And so Paul is not pulling any punches. He's laying it right out there. There's enough of a scandal. There's one scandal everyone must be willing to embrace to be saved. And that scandal, scandalon, or here, this other word, proscoma, stumbling block, is Jesus Christ, the Savior. That the only way to God's favor, the only way to right standing before God, the only way to eternal life and eternal reward is to have faith in the crucified Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the the virgin-born, sinless one, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who himself bore the Father's wrath against sin, shed his blood to propitiate that wrath, to avert God's wrath so that we might have mercy, was raised on the third day, as he predicted, bodily appeared to many witnesses, ascended to heaven, as he predicted, before many witnesses, and promised to come again, to bring salvation to those who eagerly wait him and judgment upon his enemies. Only through belief in Jesus Christ, trusting him alone, can we ever have salvation. Without him, we bear God's wrath our own in our own selves, and we're lost. That's enough of an offense. We don't need more, but we need to believe in him. Today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, as the one who is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him and trust him alone. Don't trust religion. Don't trust works. Don't trust the world. Trust in him. And believing in him is how we have eternal life and right standing before God. And those who do are part of the body of Christ. So as we go forward here, as I make some applications, we're addressing each other as we're part of the body of Christ. How do we live in a way that shows love without putting false binding on anyone? How can we have a diverse group of folks saved by grace who live together and show love for God and for one another. That's what will be addressed in really the rest of 1 Corinthians. I have just two applications. By the way, if you do trust in Christ, 
You're part of the family. Immediately, you're grafted in. The human conscience is important but not decisive. Number two, Christ will enable all to stand because of his finished work. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. We'll start with verse 4. This is from a review of what I preached a couple years ago whenever I started in 1 Corinthians. But it's telling us here... um, No, excuse me. This is in chapter 4. This is about not passing judgment. We'll get to the other one a little bit later. Not passing judgment. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. Paul about himself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. One of the reasons we're not adequate to pass judgment on other Christians in the sense of being the final arbiter of if they're right before God is that we don't know the motives of the heart. They're hidden. God is the only one who is the appropriate and has the judge who has the qualities to judge because God knows the heart. And we can outwardly do wonderful, nice things to other people so that we appear good to them. But God knows the motives of the heart. And those motives can only be right by a work of grace that God provides. But Paul had been facing the negative judgment of the Corinthian church, and the gospel came to Corinth through Paul's ministry. Then they started judging him. You're not good enough. You just want our money. You did this wrong. You're not like Apollos. You're, you're unimpressive. Your speech is contemptible. Look at you, Paul. Who would ever want you for their apostle? And so he says, don't pass judgment for the time. Wait till the Lord comes. Now in chapter 9, he's going to um, argue that he is really an apostle, despite the fact that some didn't like him too well. Wait till the Lord comes. Now, does that mean that we're cavalier? Does it matter what we do? No, it means that we show respect for what God has said and done and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not want to harm anyone. We care about those that we'll spend eternity with. So in the context, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Paul didn't even consider his own self-assessment to be the final exam. God is the one who gives the final exam. And you don't get to cheat on that final exam. And it's not by works, it's by grace. Rewards have to do with how we treat one another and how we serve. We're not going to lose our eternal reward. That is secure. The word here before the time, kairos, is an eschatological term in this context. The Lord knows the heart. He's the judge. So we shouldn't be 
too impressed with our own supposed superior knowledge to others, but we should be circumspect and trusting God to give us grace and how we live on this earth and interact both with the lost and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me make a statement I put in my notes that I wanted to make sure I got right. Many are full of boldness about their own superior standing and love to look down on others. Others are timid and fearful about their own status in God's eyes and are easily manipulated and are harmed. That is why we need the objective truth of Scripture to correct us when we are wrong, encourage us when we are truly serving as a blessing to the Lord's flock, and to give us hope and comfort. The the inner conscience cannot be the arbiter of our spiritual well-being. Some folks will feel guilty about everything. Others will never feel bad because they just assume, I'm great. Aren't you all lucky I'm around? Not good. Not good. It's a dangerous attitude. Circumspect, but yet bold in the finished work of Christ would be a good balance that we are standing in what God did for us, not what we're going to do for him. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, 2. And then I will get to where I said I was going to, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, that we do have standing. In the next epistle of Corinthians, Paul continues to defend himself because they weren't any happier with him after they got the first epistle. 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, this is very telling the hucksters, the people who want to gain a big following at any cost are um, walking in craftiness. Greek word panergia. Panergia. Craftiness reminds us of the serpent in the garden who was crafty, full of guile, sneaky, deceptive getting people to believe how great his idea was, which was going to damn everyone. So that craftiness reminds us of the serpent. And what happened after they listened to the serpent? They were hiding in shame. In the context in chapter 3, Paul talks about the ministry of glory and the ministry of condemnation. And so what happens in the world What's going on here is those who ought to be ashamed or not, they're, they're glorying in self, glorying in their greatness, selling themselves, making themselves out to be somebody fantastic. Preachers do this. Send me your money and you'll get your healing. Send me your money and you'll be part of something important. And if our group has millions of dollars and you're part of it by sending your little bit, you get to participate in the glory of this glorious group we're all part of. 
And that is not the gospel. That is not the church. That is what Paul is warning about. Because Paul wouldn't do that, he found himself being judged by those who like those sort of things. That's what's going on. And so he has his full speech later in 2 Corinthians. I must be a fool. How could this be? I guess I am a fool. I served you for nothing. I didn't ask you for anything. But they still hated him. Adulterating the word of God. Why would someone do that? Because if you don't preach the whole counsel of God, you twist certain verses, make things sound a certain way, you can massage the gospel and turn it into something it's not and make it seem delightful to the world. You don't have to repent of paganism. You don't have to give up your associations uh, with uh, idolatry and whatever. You can make your own ticket. You can go and rise above everything else. But if you are not crafty, you teach the Bible for what it says, you will end up very possibly often with churches that don't like you and will try to get rid of you. That's what Paul had happen in Corinth. The word of God should not be adulterated. It should be presented clearly and forthrightly for what it does say. We should equip the saints with clear teaching of the word of God. And, And dear ones, the primary practice that you see if you listen to enough sermons and enough different places is to skip around, skip over here, skip over there, leave out what you don't like, only touch on the things that build up your contrived doctrine and leave people in the dark about everything else. And if somebody actually reads the Bible themselves and said, preacher, why are you leaving out these things? The answer is the same. We think you'd be happier in a different church. Rather than being ready to give an answer to the hope or dealing with the text, push people away. We don't want to do that. We want to search together the scriptures to understand the whole counsel of God. Manifestation of, of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. We're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. We shouldn't anyhow. We shouldn't do that. And uh, we don't have to have glory now. We need to renounce what's shameful and proclaim what's true. Dr. Seafried says, yeah, while God presently hides his glory, human beings hide their shame. Both will be revealed together. God hides his glory so we don't die. Don't ready for it. Humans hide their shame. I thought that was a good point. He also says, indeed, the fundamental issue, says Seafried, is the false assumption that the Corinthians, of the Corinthians, that they are competent to judge the apostle. The visible and outward standards that they bring to the matter prevent them from seeing that they themselves are being judged in their response to the suffering apostle. 
Appearances, said Seafried, are deceptive. Yes, they are. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory may be of God. We judge by worldly standards, judge preachers by worldly standards, judge a lot of things by worldly standards. It ought not to be. We judge by God help us not to do this one another by worldly standards. And how do we know these things? How do we know that someone we may very much overlook is an important, integral part of the body that's there for our benefit? That's how we should treat each one and one another. Uh, The word adulterating, dilao, means to make false through deception or distortion. Eric and I, Eric, were talking about this this morning. We talk about this a lot. It's amazing how many theological systems are not interested in the whole counsel of God. They're only wanting to see what will prop up their little system. But if you teach the whole counsel of God, you're not allowed to do that. And God's word is sacred. We can't adulterate it. We can't massage it to make it say something it doesn't. Paul, this is my statement, Paul spoke to humans the truth of the gospel, which brings light upon the darkness of sin. Paul's message was not designed to sound appealing to the perverse motivations of religious consumers, but to bring conviction of the truth, which he lived out himself by God's grace. Conviction of the truth, which he lived out himself God's grace. Now back to where we started, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6, and then 7 through 8, and we'll close with this, these two slides. He says this, at the very beginning, before all of the debate is laid out there, Paul wrote this, I thank my God always concerning you. So Paul had issues with Corinth, but he thanked God for them. They're the Lord's people. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, in that everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ confirmed in you. It's not by accident that he affirms to the church that was judging him that they were enriched in Christ in speech and knowledge, two of their favorite things. They thought Paul's speech was deficient, and they thought they had better knowledge. Paul affirms that, yes, the church does have speech and knowledge, and it's a gift of grace. But that speech and knowledge isn't there to uh, puff up, puff up, but to build up through love. And we need to understand it in the context. The grace of God, let me make my statement here. The grace of God, which was given you in Christ, was given, heiress, point in time, at conversion. You here is a, well, that's technical. I'll leave that statement out. The church and each one of who is a member through regeneration is enriched with the intent to benefit the body of Christ. Some would later claim special status versus some who they deem to be lesser members of the body. 
this will be corrected. At this point, Paul establishes what is true for the corporate body of Christ. Despite the problems he will address, Paul thanks God for them. What is significant is that God, what God did by grace in Christ. Knowledge and speech will come up as points of contention or by some claim elite status. Dear ones, we can't claim elite status. Not one of us can. Why? Because it's still before the time. God will disclose the hidden things and secrets and motives of the heart. That's his business. What we can do is by love serve one another and give the glory to God. Let me get to that last slide. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the kind, merciful, and encouraging words Paul begins his epistle with to the Corinthians, who would not return that to him. They wouldn't use that kind of kindness in speaking about him. But he's convinced that those whom the Lord saved, he will keep. And those he keeps, he will confirm blameless to the end of the day. How can we be blameless in the day of the Lord? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? I'm citing a song. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we think our status is based on making a negative judgment on another brother or sister in the body, that's a fool's mission. We think our status is enhanced or self-promotion, it's also a fool's mission. We need to thank God for grace that any of us can serve him. Notice the Greek word for gift, charisma, which we could, I think, translate grace gift. They are awaiting the eschaton, the return, with the grace gift that God's given. Not everybody has the same gifts. That'll come on 1 Corinthians 12. But the body has them. And therefore, we need one another. One more statement here. I need to close. The problem in church history is that the Christians do not want to hear that which is given, has been given by Christ through his apostles and received a conversion. Why? Why does the in church history, we're not content with this? Because religious leaders in the name of Christ are building institutions that will be self-preserving. And they got to have status. They've got to have hierarchy. They've got to have massive buildings. They've got to have something impressive. They've got to have something so impressive, you wouldn't even want to go to the pagan temple because the church building is a pagan temple. Because we got the same kind of pagan sacrifices. And so we just recreate what motivates the pagan pagans and call it Christianity. Whereas the church is a group of whoever from wherever whose sins are forgiven 
people who had nothing going for them, but they're adopted into the family of God and loved by God, and they need one another. It's so simple. It's an organism attached to the head. We don't need some kind of knowledge that only some elite ones have. We need what God's given to the church. We need one another. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy that you allowed us to be part of the family of God. And Lord, may our hearts be humbled as we think of our need for you and for one another. And may we open our hearts to learn directly from your word what you've said and apply it to our lives so that we can be a blessing as whatever gifts we have been given would be used to serve you and one another. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.